Right thinking about ourselves. That's today on Truth For Today with Pastor Phil Howard. Join us. Pride goes before a fall. Humble yourself in the eyes of the Lord and He will lift you up. Well, those are verses we all know good and well. And the Apostle Paul knows them quite well too. That's why he deals with them here in chapter 12 and verse 3 of Romans. Hi and welcome. This is Truth For Today with Pastor Phil Howard, the ministry of Valley Bible Church in Hercules. We're continuing our series, Living Sacrifice, Serving One Another. And today, we're asking the question, are you thinking right about yourself? Rather, the Apostle Paul does. Here's Pastor Phil Howard now with more. Look at Deuteronomy 8. Another great thing that sets us up for pride. Great prosperity, he says. Look at Deuteronomy 8, how he warns Israel. Are you there? I'm listening for paper. Come on. Come on. Turn. This is a Bible church. Turn that page. Uh, Deuteronomy 8.10. When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I'm giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build the houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large, and your silver and gold increase, and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud, and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt out of the land of slavery. I'm more concerned with people who are given promotions, who are given great prosperity and given great success than I am those who are being afflicted, tested, and tried. For trials will test your heart and drive you to the only God that can get you through prosperity, promotion, and power, and success. Set us up just as much of the American church, we brag about the size of our buildings. We brag about the size of our income. We brag about the money we used to have before a crash. We brag with external things. When I'm out meeting preachers, how many people do you have? That immediately is supposed to measure the size of my heart. And if I've got a church of a thousand, I must be a great preacher. I must be a great pastor. You know what they ought to ask me? Do you seek God like you used to? Do you have a prayer life? Do you, do you study the Word like you used to? Oh, oh, we know you started in no dance hall. We know there used to be 19. We've heard that over and over. But you now have made it. You now have buildings. You're the nicest building in town. Your crowd even knows how to dress and not smell too bad. You don't look like a bunch of hippies anymore. You kind of can be refined. You've arrived. Arrived at what? More people are lost from where I preach within 10 miles of this place. More people are going to hell than when I began. More kids are into sex and drugs and broken homes than when we began. The ground is barren. Few conversions, you see. Few people in baptism waters. Prayer meetings are scarce. Prayerlessness abounds. 
The only ones who seem to spend much time in it are those 45 and older. Those younger have not yet learned to wait very much. We're just enjoying, resting on all this success and prosperity. America's nearly bankrupt for Bible preaching and Bible praying and Bible dependence. Who do we think we are that we could coast? We haven't arrived. Family members are lost. Churches are breaking up. Homes are filing for divorce. In this church, we'll come to the Lord's Supper next week. We have at least four or five people we're going to excommunicate and put out of this church because they no longer choose to walk with Christ. They've abandoned the assembly. They've gone into adultery. They've gone into different sins. And we must come to the Lord's table next Sunday night and weep and grieve and turn them over to God. Who are we in a day God can blow out the lampstand and say, you used to be. You used to be a church I used. You used to be, but you're so cocky. You don't need to pray anymore. You're so proud of what you think you have. I don't hear you crying out. I don't hear, I don't see humility. I don't see getting low. Asking God to save your loved ones, to save our kids, to save this community. Oh, that I had a church that knew how to pray, had a church that knew how to weep, that knew how to grieve over the lostness of this area. Let's quit counting our money while people are going to hell. What are we in love with, ourselves, our so-called authority? You know, I've been here 38 years. I ought to start coasting. I keep hearing people, it's time for you to kind of take it easy. I like to take it easy if people would quit going to hell. If, if people didn't need the Word of God, they didn't need somebody to say, let's keep promoting Christ until He comes. I'm looking for a whole generation to replace me. Where are they? I see John MacArthur, 68. John Swindoll's in his 70s. I see Bible teachers aging, getting up there, and maybe another 10 years at the most. Many of these men will be off the scene. I'm saying, oh, God, fill the ranks with men that love your word, who fear your name, who are not in love with their ego, but will beg God to give America revival. We need another generation that want to know God, that aren't stuck on ourselves. James Dobson aging out. This one, that one, I keep looking around. Oh, God, who are you raising up? Do we have a bunch of methodologies? Everybody a computer whiz? Computers don't pray. Computers don't preach. Computers can't revive this place. We've got to have people. God bears the burden of his charge on the hearts of people, not on technology. We cannot pay some robot to have the burden for this area. God wants the burden carried on your heart. When's the last time you wept and said how impotent we are in power? I keep saying, save God Almighty. God, save. God, do something with people as weak and as inadequate as us. Do something. But as long as we're having our success and we're in intoxicated with our own news releases and we're measuring ourselves by ourselves aren't we great haven't we done something we are really upset we are nothing apart from the hand of God we will be Ichabod in a minute 
apart from the blessing of God. Pray, church. Pray. Be here Thursday night. You want to be on that May meeting. Pray. Pray. You can prophesy it's over. Any idiot can see we're in desperate times. I want to see somebody that prays. Tell me about how much you pray. Tell me who you're praying for. Pride puffs us up. We rest on knowledge. Uh, it breeds contention. I must say something about pride and humility. Uh, sometimes uh, a man by the name of Chesterton, a Roman Catholic journalist, died in about 1936. He wrote a book called Orthodoxy. And he said a profound thing about humility and modesty. And listen to what he says. And I hope to try to give you the feel. It's profound. Listen to what he says. What we suffer from today is humility in the wrong place. Modesty has moved from the organ of ambition. Modesty has settled upon the organ of conviction where it was never meant to be. A man was meant to be doubtful about himself, but undoubting about the truth. This has been exactly reversed. Nowadays, the part of a man that a man does assert is exactly the part he not, ought not to assert himself. The part he doubts is exactly the part he ought not to doubt, the divine reason. Let me give you an example. In an age of tolerance and you cannot know truth, or if you know truth, and, and we, now let's get in the age. You should never say, I know truth, because that sounds like you know truth. If in your opinion you think you're right, you cannot dare say it's the truth because it's only your opinion of the truth, and we don't know what the truth is, so we're educated because we found out there's nothing to know. The proof of sophisticated education in the philosophy department of Cal Berkeley is there's nothing certain to know. Now, it's kind of hard to run a chemistry lab on that. I hope they don't measure my medicine that way. I hope a milligram is still a milligram. It doesn't matter what a milligram is. It's just, how do you, what do you feel a milligram? Well, I feel it's an ounce. Well, then go ahead. You feel it. It must be right. Uh, how many patients did you lose in your shift? Ten. Because it doesn't matter. Measurements are not absolute. You just do as you feel it. I just prayed over it. And I felt it ought to be maybe a gallon. Well, a gallon could kill you. Well, that's all relative. We know it's relative. They're relatively dead. And what he's saying here is, we have this idea. Let me, how can I illustrate this? That, that we come up here and we could do this way. Let me say, I'm humble about the statement that I thank God would want us to give ourselves to him out of mercy, but I'm not sure since I cannot be certain of what he said, but uh, uh, I am certain of that because I have a PhD. No, 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 no. What, what Chesterton is saying is we ought to be humble about ourselves that we know the truth. The humility ought to be about ourselves, but not about the truth. I come to you and I say with certainty God says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And, and this is what it says, are you certain? I am certain. 
well, who are you? You can't. Oh, I don't make it certain. It is certain. I'm just declaring to you what he said is certain. I am a forgiven sinner. I'm not the most brilliant person. I'm not, but I'm just saying two plus two equals four. And I didn't invent that. It's just true. Humility ought to be about ourselves, but not about truth. God is sovereign. God has a moral standard. I can be certain about his morality, for he has spoken and he has not stuttered. It is clear. So when I come up here to you, some people say, man, somebody you act as bold as a lion. It's the only thing I know for sure is what's written in this book. This is for sure. My opinions vacillate like up and down, up and down. But what the word of the Lord has said, the heavens will pass away. Kingdoms will pass away. But what I have said in my word, God could say, you can bank your life on that. And the church said, amen. We have not have a faith built on fables. We have not followed cunningly devised trickery of men. This is a certain word. Don't put the humility and say, and, oh, I must say, I'm overwhelmed that mercy allows me to preach it. Mercy allows me to understand it. God in grace saved me from the ash heap of humanity. I'm a humble that I could be before you as a forgiven sinner and get to preach, but I am certain that what God said is true. Don't ever put humility at the point of truth. The humility is towards ourselves. Do you understand what I'm saying? Nod your head like that if you get it, and like that if you don't. Ushers, take those people out. Well, I must hurry. I don't want to, but I will. Two other things. He said, think soberly. Soberly means free from intoxication. But it came to be used of uh, someone that had a steady opinion, not, not moved by emotions, uh, clear-headed thinking. Uh, be sober when you consider yourself. Be clear-headed. Uh, you don't want to be overruled by critics. And you don't want to be inflated by fans, as it were. Uh, you want to be clear-headed that you might discern the will of God and know the will of God. So he says, remain sober. And he said that of officers, elders, and deacons. He said, be sure you get men who are sober. He said, teach the women in Titus 2 to be sober, not given to soaps and emotions and uh, moods. And, no, 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 they can think clear-headed. They have their wits about them. So learn to think soberly. And when you're in trials or if you're in a promotion, you know when you get promoted, when you get a bonus, when you get a blessing, think soberly. Run to God. Give him the glory. Give him the credit. Honor him some way with the blessing. When you're being demoted, when you're having rough times, run to God. Don't despair. Think soberly in all situations. Stay mentally free from intoxication, as it were. Then he says, thirdly, uh, I want you to measure your thinking by the faith. And this is a uh, difficult verse. Uh, its interpretations have varied. I think Cranfield said there are at least 70 different interpretations of the measure of faith. 70. So pay your money, take your choice. But let me uh, tell you what I think represents the best view. The two, two prominent views, maybe three. Three, one view is 
there is a measure of faith that is over and above the norm for those who have spectacular gifts. Let's say those who had gifts of healing, tongues, prophesying. And so that category had an exceptional measure of faith. Some use it that way. Uh, the faith that can move a mountain, and so they have incredible amount of faith. And they think of it as a quantity measured out in large measure. Uh, then there is an, another view that uh, I think that I've always held to until I keep studying and looking at it. It was that each gift that God gives a measured out proportion of faith to match every person's spiritual gift so that you can operate it. And he's given you enough faith to operate the gift of how you're to function in the body. And, and good men believe that, John Murray and, and others. So sane interpreters, uh, that, that's, that's a very common, I think that's a view I've always held. But some men in some recent studies uh, by C.E.B. Cranfield out of England and uh, also Douglas Moo out of Trinity, they look at this, that there's two ways the measure can be used. It could be used of a quantitative sense. We're going to measure out a certain amount. Or it could be used of a divine standard or a divine estimate, how we measure our thinking. And I think they're right by saying it's being used as not what God measures out to you, but it's by this divine standard of the faith by which we all have the same amount of faith, but we're all being measured in our thinking, because he's dealing with our thinking, measure yourself by the faith. Now, there's, here's faith. Saving faith has two parts, the subjective part, me, and the object I believe. What saves, now, let me ask you a question. What saves? Your faith or Christ. Faith only receives the gift, doesn't it? Christ is the Savior. Okay. So, he's saying, I want you to think. When you think, measure yourself by the object of your faith that saved you, which I would understand. Measure your thinking by Christ. We've all got the faith. I'm talking about something in common. You all have it. If it was different quantities, you may be inflated because you've got more or less. No, we've all got this faith. But the object of the faith that really saves is Christ. I want you to measure your thinking like Christ. And he says this in uh, Philippians. When you think, think like Christ. Let this thinking be in you, which was in Jesus. And what was that thinking? Though he were in the external expression of God, he thought it not a thing to be held on to at all costs, to vacate that external glory and become a man and took unto himself the form of a servant. We used to hear this phrase, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? It's not a bad measurement. What would Jesus do? That's thinking like Christ. How would Christ, if he was a member of this church, where do you think he'd be sitting today? And how would he get outside the building? How do you think he'd behave? Would Jesus be a good church member? Or would he be hard to handle? He ain't telling me what to do. 
You think so? Do you think he would serve? Do you think he'd be cocky? Do you think our children would be afraid of him? Would he be approachable? Would he be humble? What if he was suffering? Would he threaten you? Don't you threaten me. I'll get you back. First Peter 2 says, when he was threatened and railed upon, he didn't retaliate. On and on and on. Measure your thinking to the object of your faith. The measure. Measure yourself by the faith. And that measurement is Christ. Measure yourself by Christ. Let me uh, close with what C.S. Lewis said. The pleasure of pride is like the pleasure of scratching. If there is an itch, one does want to scratch. But it is much nicer to have neither the itch nor the scratch. As long as we have the itch of self-regard, we shall want the pleasure of self-approval. But the happiest moments are those when we forget our precious selves and have neither the itch nor the scratch. If you're itching to be praised, you'll seek out someone to scratch you. It's a symptom of our pride. I quote to you something about the opposite. There is a weird opposite to pride that is called self-pity. The proud boast, the weak have self-pity, but both are controlled by pride. And let me read to you a line that Piper writes. John Piper, he says, boasting and self-pity, both are manifestations of pride. Boasting is the response of pride to success. Self-pity is the response of pride to suffering. Boasting says, I deserve admiration because I have achieved so much. Self-pity says, I deserve admiration because I've sacrificed so much. Boasting is the voice of pride in the heart of the strong. Self-pity is the voice of pride in the heart of the weak. Boasting sounds self-sufficient. Self-pity sounds self-sacrificing. But the need arises from a wounded ego and the desire of the self-pitying is not really for others to see them as helpless, but as heroes. They need self-pity, feels, does not come from a sense of unworthiness, but from a sense of unrecognized worthiness. It is the response of unapplauded pride. Pride in all of its forms, desiring praise, wrong reaction to prosperity, promotion. But God says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and he shall exalt you in due time. If my people would but humble themselves, I could heal their land and restore them. What I'm looking for in proud, proud America is a people who humble themselves before God and say, had mercy not found me, I'm a candidate for the lake of fire. And in response, God, you get my body. I no longer want to follow an evil culture. I want to be renewed. And by all means, I want to thank right towards you. God bless you. You're dismissed. Well, after spending the last few weeks here in the book of Romans, chapters 1 through 11, 
It's nice to get to chapter 12 and realize how we apply all of this theology the Apostle Paul is laying out for us, right? This is Truth For Today. You're listening to Pastor Phil Howard as we work our way through chapter 12 of Romans. Our series is called Living Sacrifice, Serving One Another. Now, speaking of serving one another, this radio broadcast really is a service provided by Truth For Today, but it's made available through your involvement directly. You see, this is a listener-supported ministry, and as you partner with us financially and prayerfully, basically what you're doing is you're serving one another. Not only do you serve us that we can continue the ministry here on KFAX, but it allows us to serve others with the gospel of Jesus Christ here on KFAX. So really, it is a marvelous way that we can serve one another as we link arms together to continue the ministry of Truth For Today. And as you do so, you'll receive a quarterly newsletter, a a once-a-year special gift, and access to Take a Break. It's the weekly video devotional featuring our teacher and pastor, Pastor Phil Howard. And again, that's for being a TFT sustainer. No gift is too small and no gift is too large. Consider that as you contact us. Again, you can reach us at valleybible.org and give securely online or call 855-833-9864. That's 855-833-9864. A lot of other information, by the way, is found on our website, valleybible.org. Who we are, what we believe, and ministry opportunities, and a chance to worship with us at Valley Bible Church, our service times, directions, and location. It's all there at valleybible.org, and we'd love to see you in person. If you do plan on visiting, let one of the ushers know you were invited by the radio broadcast. That would mean a great deal to us. And then come back and join us next time for another broadcast of Truth For Today with Pastor Phil Howard. Pastor Phil Howard.